Welcome to What the Foster, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to the voiceless, the often unheard and invisible population of current and former youth in foster care. What the Foster is produced by Umbrella, a New Jersey foster care nonprofit. I'm your host, Frank. This week, we're with Casey again as she recounts her time in care. Last week, we saw Casey removed from her adoptive parents' home after allegations of physical and emotional abuse. The breakup of her family was hard for her to understand, especially as she had not yet processed the ways her adoptive parents had wronged her. Feeling wrongfully removed, Casey's first home was especially difficult. This is part two of Casey's story. It was scary. They had a dog. It was big. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it was just like, went upstairs and cried myself to sleep, man. Like, I don't, that was it. And then I was... Did you meet the, like, you, you met Yeah, the, I met the foster, the foster mom, foster. but it was like, okay, hi. <laughs> How you doing? And that was it. Yeah. Um, and then I was, like, real confused the next day yeah. when I woke up. And they were like, oh, we're going to church. I'm like, it's Saturday. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Felt like I didn't fit in. There was a specific aspect that complicated Casey's feelings of exclusion and difference. Her foster mother treated Casey differently from the biological daughter that was also living in the home. They had a daughter. Uh, they actually had two daughters and a son, but the the son, he didn't live there. And the oldest daughter, she was getting ready to move out soon. Um, and then they had a daughter that was the same age as me, just a couple months older. Um, and, yeah, you could tell the differences of how they treated her and then how they treated me. Um, how she got to wear certain clothes and then I got to wear different clothes. Like, I just didn't understand that. Like, they would get my clothes from, like, Goodwill sometimes or the thrift, the thrift store. Um, and there would be, like, rare times that I would get clothes from, like, the mall and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of the times, like, it would be clothes from, like, the thrift store and stuff. It is not at all uncommon for foster parents to already have biological children when they begin fostering. However, the process of integrating new kids into the home can be complicated. It can be difficult to know how your family will respond. I, like, begged them to not let me stay in this home anymore um, because it was, just was not a good home to be in. Like, I just did not, I didn't like it there. Like, they would talk about me, talk about my family. There were even times where it was just like they, because they had something to do on the day that I had visits, it was like I couldn't go on my visit. Yes. On Umbrella's Facebook page, we host the weekly question series, A Foster Parent Asks, where real parents respond to questions about fostering. In one post about raising bio kids with foster children, parents Kristen, Benicia, and Elizabeth all seem to agree that it's important to involve your biological children in the decision-making process. Either way, Casey found living there intolerable. Her foster mother's differing treatment of her would affect Casey in other ways as well. Um, they went and allowed me, they made it so that I wasn't able to go to church, um, with my godparents anymore because they had an issue with my goddad picking me up. In today's landscape, there's no way this would be permissible. 
Foster care is intended as a temporary solution while families resolve their family issues and become able to responsibly and safely care for their child. Barring some pretty big mistakes from Casey's adoptive parents, like drugs or crime, it's not clear that there would be sufficient reason to keep Casey from her visitations. Child welfare professionals across the country acknowledge that children should be with their parents, and visitations are one of the primary ways a kid remains connected to their parents during this traumatic time. So that I had to stop going to my church um, and only go to theirs on Saturdays, and that's not something that I believed in. As in every other area of life, religion is a difficult issue in foster care. A number of organizations and nonprofits involved in child welfare are religiously affiliated, as are some foster parents. It might be natural for a parent to try and give spiritual guidance to a child in their care, but the end goal of foster care is reunification. That means that a child should retain the religious teachings they were raised with before entering care, because they are expected to be back in that home and community once again. Even today, groups like Miracle Hill Ministries in South Carolina are combining faith and foster care, taking their religious affiliation to a new level. Unfortunately, this approach can work counter to the goal of reunification if it puts the child at odds with their original community and family. It should be noted that there is a foster care bill of rights. According to the rights listed, there is currently no right to religious freedom for children in foster care. In New Jersey, Bill A-463 was introduced to the legislature in 2018 and would give foster children the right to religious freedom in this state. Um, so yeah, and, and then like, they were physically abusive to their own daughter, so... Please be aware that we have not independently verified any of Casey's claims. However, abuse in foster homes is not a foreign issue. As we've mentioned in the previous episode, there would be many reforms between today and Casey's time in care. The incident often cited as the start of a drastic reform in New Jersey was the 2002 death of seven-year-old Fahim Williams. Casey entered care just shortly after two relatives pled guilty of charges stemming from the death of Fahim and were sent to prison. CPNP, then DIFUS, would begin a long series of important reforms. Unfortunately for Casey, most of the issues she would encounter in the coming years would not be addressed until much later. And so when I did tell my worker and the department came out to investigate, it was an issue. It went from there and I think, I know they knew that it was me that told because who else was gonna tell. Um, and so from there it just got even worse. Like they were mad because I said something. Casey would soon be leaving this home. In an effort to remove her from abuse, the state had inadvertently put Casey in an untenable and allegedly abusive environment. Another fact we know about removal is that each new placement can set youth behind four to six months in their education. By this point, a conservative estimate would suggest Casey had already fallen behind four months. A new placement would mean an additional four months of educational time lost. The deep impact on education is worsened when a child is pulled out of a familiar setting and thrust into a distant or foreign one. Yeah, I was in middle school and I started, I finished middle school and I started high school. I had to change schools, um, yeah, because they lived in a different town. They lived in Pensacola, and I'm from like Sicklerville. For the past eight months, Casey's entire life had been reorganized around her foster mother's life. Even her removal, which she had begged for, 
seemed to come on her foster mother's terms. So, I mean, the foster mom told me, like, the day before, pack my stuff in the trash bags, and the next day I moved. It was, like, a relief. Um, I was a little nervous because I was, like, it was dark. The foster mom, she was nice. I liked her in the beginning. Um, and she seemed really cool. And there was another foster girl there. She had her own daughter, and then there was another foster girl there, too. So I was like, okay, this is good because I have someone I can relate to. Um... And this was like a therapeutic foster home. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I was in a therapeutic foster home. as my second time, second home, but okay. Casey's surprise over being placed in a therapeutic foster home is well-founded. A therapeutic foster home involves specifically trained parents who care for youth with severe mental, emotional, or behavioral health needs. This includes medically fragile or developmentally delayed youth whose physical and emotional health needs require more intensive clinical and medical intervention than can be accommodated in traditional foster care. Simply by placing Casey in such a home, Dyfus had placed several labels on her, and she was now well aware of it. So yeah, things were good in the beginning. Um, West Echo was in the same school district that I used to go to, so I was happy about that. So I returned to my old school, I got to be with my friends again. and I was allowed to, like, participate in, like, extracurricular activities, which was something I wasn't allowed to do um, with in the old foster home, in the first foster home. Um, they didn't let me do that. Um, and so I was able to participate in those activities. Um, I even got a job at, like, 15, 16. It seemed like things were looking up. Back in her community and now with a job, Casey was heading back towards a true sense of normalcy. It was not long-lived. I was there shy of one year. It turned um, for a couple different reasons. So I did meet the boy across the street. Um, thought it was some young yeah. love. <laughs> At that time, I was young. Um, and he was four years older than me, too. They didn't really like that. He's not doing anything. Um, and she didn't like the fact that I would like to go over there a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I liked his mom. His mom was, like, still really, she's really nice. She still considers me, like, one of her daughters. Like, she calls me and stuff like that. Um, and his sisters, too. And, um, but she didn't really like that. And I felt like, I feel like she was kind of jealous, maybe. I don't know. But she had these times where it was just, like, she would turn (laughs) like it was like a whole totally different person and she would like curse us out and stuff like that yes um it was crazy and yeah it was a lot of crazy stuff going on and one day um I was not following directions and I went over my boyfriend's house that lived across the street and she had called me on the phone and she was like yelling at me and so I got mad and she told me to come outside and I did and she pulled up in her red car and um literally like like we were in the nfl yes and the neighbors had to break us up the neighbors had to break us up mm-hmm. yes um but even after that i wanted to stay in the home because i didn't want to move again despite all this casey still considered the hassle of removal worse than staying with that foster parent we asked whether her friends knew about her situation. So some of my friends knew, not a lot of people didn't know. I, I don't even think the school knew until after a certain point. 
but but we'll get to that <laughs> so yeah like I wanted to stay there and so I did for like a couple more I think it might have been a couple more weeks what had happened was uh she said that we me and the other foster girl were gonna go to a respite home because she was going away right. for the weekend like okay cool before continuing we feel it's important to talk a little bit about the mentor network at this point in the story Casey is living in a home that is overseen by the Mentor Network. During the time Casey was in care, Dyfus contracted out placement services with a number of for-profit companies, such as the Mentor Network, which we'll refer to here as Mentor. Back then, this process of finding third-party placement agencies was common in New Jersey. After the death of Fahim Williams, the ensuing investigation revealed some devastating truths about foster care in the state at that time. The New York Times reported that as a result of this investigation, the researchers concluded, quote, no assurances can be given that any child in the state monitored foster homes or institutions is actually safe, unquote. Mentor, however, stands out as a very particular and disappointing example of what can happen when the state fails to properly oversee the agencies it contracts with, especially when that company's bottom line competes for priority with the success of foster children. As we reported in our newsletter, between 2005 and 2014, 86 children across the country died while under the supervision of Mentor. They have a history of ignoring or at least failing to recognize the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse that was occurring in some of their foster homes. In short, with little to no oversight, foster care under Mentor was uncontrolled, rules were fluid, and Casey had to advocate for herself. Um... So she had dropped off the girl at one home, or matter of fact, no, it was a Wawa. They had did a swap at a Wawa. Yes, they did a swap at a Wawa. I was like, okay. And then she dropped me off at someone else's house, and I knew it was in like Violent. Um, and she only told us to pack the clothes for the weekend. Yeah. So I was in Violent at this respite home, and they were really nice people. They were cool. I liked them. Respite care is temporary housing for when the foster family and the child must be separated. This can typically occur when family vacations might cause the child to miss a court date or visitation. And the weekend ends, and I'm like, okay, so what time is my foster mom coming to pick me up? And he was like, oh, she didn't tell you? I'm like, mm, tell me what? And she they was like, oh, this is your new foster home. I was like, mm, no, it's not. <laughs> what do you mean, my new foster home? Because <laughs> I only have clothes for the weekend. And I'm quite sure my worker doesn't know. So <laughs> what do you mean? Her foster mother, without taking any proper documented steps, had gone through the trouble of rehoming Casey without her knowledge. There was no caseworker, no, no, no physical, because you got to get a physical, and, and, and when you move every time, you're supposed to get a physical. So, no, there was no physical, no nothing. So I was very confused. So the thing is, so with these therapeutic foster homes, the way that it was set up, and I'm not sure if it's set up the same way now, um, that they were contracted through different organizations. This organization just happens to be just happened to be mentor so I had even though I had like my own DCPMP worker I also had like a mentor case manager that would come and see me like every month um and then we also had to go to like the mentor office to see the doctor psychiatrist just to make sure like I wasn't crazy and I didn't have to take any medication so yes um 
so they had like their own network and so I guess like they talk back and forth like the foster parents like talk back and forth with each other I don't know how they thought that it was okay like we can just do a whole move um but yeah that's what happened and so the next day um the respite per- home person she called my worker and my worker came to pick me up so and then I found out that the other girl wound up going back home it was clear that her foster mother had been trying to get rid of Casey, specifically. And then the whole funny part about it was, they actually moved me to another foster home around the corner from her. Oh, wow. Literally. Like, two blocks around the corner. Did you I talk to that foster mom now. I do. I mean, I we kind of reconcile. I think she still thinks, like, certain things didn't happen. And I'm just like, no, they did happen. Like, she tried to blame me for, like, almost losing her license. I'm like, uh, you did that to yourself (laughs) because you were out here doing crazy stuff, like, doing removals. But I try to be cordial and stuff like that. Like, she, if you take all of that stuff away, like, you can tell that she does want good, but it's, like, stuff like that. And I've heard other stories from other children, kids that have lived in her home that has similar stories as well. Um, maybe not the removal, but right. how they were treated. Um, but even she was, I, sometimes I engage in conversation with her. So then the third foster home that I went to, this lady was like 60 something years old. And I was like, okay. She had a, a daughter there who was like special needs. Mm-hmm. And then she would take in like other foster uh, kids as well. So I was like the only one. At the time when I first got there, I was the only one there, but then she would take in like other foster kids too. Okay. And, but they would like come and go. And so it was cool for a little bit. Again, I still was going to school, still was able to stay after school, um, do extracurricular activities, um, still had my job. But at this point, I was, like, really... So, like, when I lived in the other foster home, I was, like, really independent. So, like, I would take the bus to and from work mm-hmm. by myself. And I didn't want nobody... I didn't need anybody to drop me off and stuff like that. There would be times, like, I rode my bike to work right. and stuff like that. And, like, I would walk, like, to and from school if I had, like, some after-school activity because school wasn't too far. But this foster mom, she was, like, too much for me. She wanted to, like, pick me up, drop me off. I'm like, uh, no, I'm good with taking a bus. Casey, who was incredibly independent and had learned she couldn't rely on others, was now in an environment where her foster mother made parental involvement mandatory. It's easy to see how that's just a woman trying to do right by a child. But in the context of Casey, a teenager at this point, the well-intentioned practice backfired. It was a lie. She wanted to pick me up from school. Like, I'm like, when I had some after school activities, I'm like, no, like, I can walk home. Thank right. you. Like, <laughs> um, so yeah, I just felt like that was a little much. And then she did not like the fact, because she harpered over the fact that the kids that she had taken over the times over the years how they loved her so much and they called her mom and this that and the third and they still come back and they they're part of the family and this that and third i'm like okay that's great but i'm not looking for that um and i was also still going to visits like i was still hoping to go home at this point it was like almost two years yeah almost two years in yeah i was 16 at the time yeah she was like 
heartburn over that. And I'm like, lady, this is not, like, I'm trying to go home. Like, I'm not looking for you to be my mom or anything like that. So, yeah, and that's what she wanted. But what she saw was how I really was attached to my boyfriend's mom. According to Casey, her relationship with her boyfriend's mother became a sticking point for her foster mother. And called her mom and wanted to spend time with them and this, that, and there. She didn't like that. She was jealous over it. So she didn't want us to be together. And she used the fact that he was four years older than me. And told the department. And they, like, actually, she said that they had called his mom and told um, them, told her that he could not be with me. So him and I had to like sneak around and stuff like that. And then what made it worse was like, she tried to like be friends with his mom. Like, it's like, y'all can't be together, but I'm gonna be friends with her. Without knowing her intentions, it's hard to say what this foster mother was thinking. Was she hoping to stay connected to Casey's boyfriend's family so she could watch over the relationship that she suspected was continuing on in secret? Either way, instead of keeping Casey safe, which could have been her intention, it drove her further away. At Christmas time, Casey would feel even more friction as her foster mother took what some might say was a rather tough position. Then I'll never forget also the time where it was Christmas. She asked, like, she would ask us what, she asked us what we wanted. And I told her I wanted, like, an iPod and, like, an iPod shuffle. And so I knew that she had got it for me. And... She had got the other girl. I don't know what she had got her daughter, but it was something. But when she found out that my parents were getting me a laptop, she told me I couldn't have it because she didn't want me to have more than anybody else. And so I went, I did get the laptop for Christmas, and I did not get the iPod. Casey's relationship with this foster mother was very strained. On top of the rule changes, Casey felt this foster mother did not respect her as a person. So it was stuff like that. And so, and then her and I would get into arguments. I would hear her talking on the phone about me to her friends and stuff like that. And then, like, I would be treated differently. And so, like, one day, like, she just made me, like, she was actually jealous because I didn't ask her to do my makeup for, uh, like, I was going to, like, um, like semi-formal for like 10th grade or something like that. She was mad because I didn't ask her to do my makeup. With these mounting issues, the relationship was at a breaking point. <sighs> One day she had made me so mad, and at the time I played softball, she just made me really mad. And she was like getting hip replacements and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so I remember like she just had a hip replacement done and she had this walker. Um, and she just like we had gotten into this really bad argument and she was like in my face and i was like if this lady does not back up i will go to my room and grab my softball bat and hit this lady and i'll be in jail like that's how bad it was um so instead i left didn't come back for a while for a while i meant like a few hours (laughs) but when i did come back i wound up cutting my wrist Self-harming and suicide are an unfortunate commonality in foster care. According to the Chronicle of Social Change, adolescents who had been in foster care were nearly four times more likely to have attempted suicide than other youth. 10% of children as young as eight 
who had been or were at risk of being maltreated, reported wanting to kill themselves. Adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs as we've mentioned in our last episode, play a major role in self-harming and suicide. One study suggests that two-thirds of suicide attempts may be attributable to ACEs. Casey, however, says that she was not trying to kill herself. Um, not because I wanted to commit suicide, and this was actually the second time I, I did it. I did it the first, I, the first time I did it was in my first foster home, and nobody ever found out. Nobody knew. Like, I had wristbands, like okay. the, like the Nike wristbands from mm-hmm. like, I just needed a way to release pain. That's how much pain I was in. Um, so yeah, I cut my wrist and the teacher at school found out. Um, and then they sent me to like the crisis center. Six hours. They asked me what was going on mm-hmm. and I talked to someone and I told them and that was it. It was like, she's not crazy. Um, crazy part is, like, after I went to the crisis center and came back, like, they took me back to the same foster home because they didn't have a placement. Yeah, so I had to go back to that foster home after they knowingly knew that I cut my wrist. So now they, like, hide the knives. And then she was like, her granddaughter couldn't talk to me and stuff like that. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, it ain't that deep. And so eventually I did I did leave, um, probably, like, a few days later. Um, I wound up leaving. But also, like, one of the other placements that came in that's, that counts as one of the placements was, like, uh, when she did go for, like, a, um, for, um, yeah, head replacement, I went to a, a respite home for, okay. like, two weeks. And that was a good home. And they knew I didn't want to go back. Like, I wanted to stay with them. And they just couldn't do it. So that's why I had to go back um, to the foster home. So, yeah, like, I eventually, a few days later, I got removed, and then I went to Anchor House. According to their website, Anchor House Incorporated is a multi-service agency for runaway, homeless, abused, and at-risk youth and their families. In the Trenton location where Casey stayed, she would experience a number of changes. Still, she seemed to enjoy her time there. That was like the best placement ever. Like, we was going to Six Flags. I didn't like the fact that I couldn't have my laptop, but the other kids there was cool. I liked it there. I mean, I was a little upset because I missed, like, school. We would come downstairs, have breakfast, and then we would have, like, educational time. It wasn't, like, school or anything like that. It was just, like, we would, we had to do, like, worksheets. Well, I had, did I have my own room? Yeah, I had my own room at the time. And it was, like, conjoined rooms. Like, they had, it was, like, a a shared suite in the middle. Like, a shared bathroom. I was still 16, and it was probably, like, maybe, like, six other kids with me. But Casey would only be at Anchor House for two weeks. Yeah, I think it was just two weeks. I didn't stay longer than that. Um, and he found me like another placement. Where did I go? I went to another foster home. Mm-hmm. Funny part was that like my worker was like, I don't know whether it was the third foster home or this foster home. And she was no, it was the third. It was like the third foster home. She was like. Before I went into that home, she was like, if you mess up this placement, then we're going to put you in residential. The caseworker was talking about a residential treatment facility. These are much more intensive places for children with emotional, behavioral needs. At the time, Casey didn't even know what that meant, but the threat was clear. And the foster mom, she was real cool. I liked her, Um, and I liked her a lot. I was the only person there. I liked that. And you could tell that she generally wanted to help kids like she generally wanted and I think I might have been her first kid 
But the one thing was that she, it was only supposed to be a short-term placement. And then the other thing was that she wanted to adopt younger kids. So, yeah. Foster teens are routinely passed over by foster parents who are searching for a small child to adopt. Casey's story shows how misunderstandings between a child and an adult can create the kinds of situations that many prospective foster parents worry about. But ultimately, Casey was just a teen coming to terms with very big things. Abuse, removal, constantly shifting rules and schedules. You can tell by the way that she describes this new foster mom that something was different for Casey here. So I stayed there and like her and I, like she would talk about her life and stuff like that, which was cool. Um, She worked for the Coast Guard. I remember going to her job one day and she was showing me around and stuff like that. And that was cool. And then like even like we picked a day where I would cook dinner and like she would take me to the store and get all the stuff that I needed and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, she was really cool, um, and I was sad that I had to leave, um, leave there, because um, like she had to go away for work, and so I had to go to I actually had to go to Center for Family Services um, to get their youth shelter while she was gone because they didn't have another placement, um, and I stayed there. And then I was like, oh, when am I going back (laughs) again? um, (laughs) What had seemed like a respite care stay had become something more permanent. This would be the second time Casey had come under the impression she was in respite care, only to later discover otherwise. So they was like, so uh, we decided that you're probably going to stay here until um, we find a residential. So I wound up staying there for like, it was probably like three weeks. I remember my new worker coming. His name was Chris, um, and I think he was new. I was like, uh, where's Miss Bernice? Miss Bernice will always be your worker. I'm like, nah. Where is Miss Bernice at, and who are you? <laughs> like, who sent you? Um, and he was like, well, I'm your new worker. I'm like, nah, nobody notified me of this change, but okay. Chris was Casey's seventh caseworker. At the time, caseworker turnover in the state was high. According to Senate Budget Appropriations Committee testimony, in March of 2006, there were 131 employees, each serving 30 families or more. According to the Annie E. Casey Foundation, high workloads like this can have a snowball effect. Staff members burn out, causing them to leave. In turn, the caseloads are redistributed to the remaining workers. This resulted in decreased contact with families and sloppier casework that culminated in increased time to permanency increased rates of maltreatment, and more placements. Fortunately for Casey, Chris was the last of her seven caseworkers. However, he was there to relocate her to a new placement, a residential treatment facility. Then, after the shelter, I went to Nazareth House, which was in Perth Danboy. As we mentioned before, each new placement represents roughly four to six months of lost education. At this point, Casey was heading to placement number eight. Educationally, Casey was likely almost three years behind her peers. We asked Casey about how her education had gone throughout all of this. I finished out my sophomore year at my last foster home. I was able to do that because it was like a few weeks like left in the school year. So I was able to finish that out. Um, but when I went to Perth Boy, I had to go to a state school 
and that was interesting in itself. So yeah, so I went to Nazareth House, which was a a treatment uh, facility or a treatment group home or whatever. Um, culture shock. Casey had lived in the suburbs, but now she found herself in Perth Amboy, a city. This sort of disruption is in and of itself traumatic. According to the Washington Post, quote, a child's sense of what safety means depends on the relationship between a person and their community. And without it, the parts of the brain that deal with attachment and fear, the amygdala and hippocampus, develop differently, unquote. This developmental difference is a fundamental contributor to PTSD later in life and can make things that are not threatening seem threatening. Imagine this process of developmental shock happening in Casey's brain for each of her eight placements. Naturally, the adjustment took some time, undoubtedly made more difficult by the fact that Casey was now aware of what placement in a residential treatment facility actually meant. minutes outside of Manhattan, so I was like, uh, where am I at? It was crazy. I was like, okay, North Jersey. Yeah. Interesting. I was there probably about seven months total. Maybe give it eight. Eight months. And so it was 12 other girls there. Well, I would make the 12. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there would be 13. That was interesting, too. And we're talking all different ages, um, probably ranging from like 14 to 18. And it was it was interesting. Surprisingly, I liked it. Don't get me wrong, like we would fight. I usually describe it as like the Bad Girls Club teenage edition. <laughs> Cause that's literally like what it was like. It was like we were all friends at one time and then then it was like the house was divided. And it was like these people were against these people. It was it was crazy. It was crazy. An experience. Definitely. I liked being there. I liked being able to relate to other people, um, to other girls. And we did have fun together. Like, the program was cool. Like, they would take us to Newark um, to go shopping. They took, a t took us to New York City, like, a lot of the times. And I've never experienced those types of things. So, and those are, like, different things that I experienced. And then, like, we were able to, like, have community time too like by ourselves like out in the community so i would like go to the mall and stuff like that i got a job while i was out there um at the mall and stuff so um yeah and it was definitely um an experience like a learning experience and stuff but they knew i they knew i wasn't supposed to be there they knew that that facility was not for me like because i was like one of the good ones not to say the other ones were bad. You knew certain people needed to be there. So, yeah, so, and I'm not going to say, like, I didn't have my times where I had issues and stuff like that. It just wasn't a placement for me. Like, I finished a program in, like, eight months. Like, there was, like, no reason for me to be here. So, this is where, like, my worker finally asked me, like, what do you want to do? It was clear that we, I was still not going to go home. By this time, Visitations with her adopted parents had stopped. At that point in time, it had stopped um, because the distance was too far. Um, so yeah, I stopped doing visits with them. Um, and they came up there to visit me like once, but like the drive, it was like a two hour drive. Um, so yeah, so they asked me like where I wanted to live 
and I had to think about it. And so through all my time and care, so I had other supports as well, and I talked about my godparents earlier. Um, and so they're not like my official godparents like or anything like that. Casey elaborated on this. So when I was in eighth grade, before I was removed and stuff like that, um, my childhood best friend and I, she had this math teacher. Um, her name was Miss Coley. And for some odd reason, we were just attracted to her. Like, we just liked bothering her during uh, when we were supposed to be in class, um, stuff like that. And so we used to just come to her classroom during lunchtime and talk with her and stuff. Um, and then, like, one time she had asked us, like, do you girls go to church and we had said no and she had asked like well would you like to go to church and we was like okay sure mm-hmm. um and so she did call our parents and ask it for permission and ask if it's okay um and then she started picking us up to go to church and i went to their church i've recently stopped going to their church because not because of anything that they did wrong i'm just I was looking for something different even though she's not technically related, Casey's stay with her godparents is a form of kinship care. Well, yeah, I went to the, we went to their church for years, um, and she has always her and her husband, who's my goddad, have always been there for me through my time in care. They taught me what it means to like believe in God and how like He can help you through any circumstance, and um, they have always been there for me. Um, and so when it came time to ask, um, where did I want to live? I had asked them if it would be okay to live with them. Um, and they said, yeah. Um, so after I left the transition, not the transition, the, um, the treatment home or facility, um, I went to live with them and, um, she had worked for the school district. So I would be able to go back to the same school. I could be with my friends again and start doing the things that I like to do. Um, But things, you never know how people are when you live with them. And I love my godmom to death, but one of my biggest pet peeves about her is uh, she likes to assume things, and that would get on my last nerve. Um, (laughs) My last nerve. So me and her would get into arguments all the time because she would always assume something. And I'm like, why are you you always assuming something? Um, But I did have a good time living there. Um, We went on vacation. They took me to Florida for the first time. That was like the first time I've been on a plane and stuff like that. So we went to Florida um, and stuff like that. And I was able to, my best friend, like, she would spend the night, like, every weekend and stuff. And then my uh, godbrother, he came to live with us. He's from originally from Louisiana, so I had him. But there were, like, things that I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know whether they were, like, fully prepared to take on, like, a 17-year-old. Even with these people she considered family, Casey knew that something wasn't working. Like, I worked I wanted I got a job at Boston Market and but they lived in like the boondocks um so like they lived at like the edge of Sicklerville where it's like no buses come so I would need to rely on them to like get to work on the weekends and stuff like that and they would be busy and I'm like um I need to go to work or at least like take me to the bus stop where I can get the work so I found difficulties with that like 
so I'm still a kid, so I still need to go to the doctors. There was difficulties with that too. Like, um, so I would rely on my adopted parents. Like, because at that time it was like we didn't need to have supervised visits anymore. Like the state said that there was no need for supervised visits anymore. Like they can, I could see them whatever I wanted to. And so, but I don't think like she understood that. Like, so she would get upset or think that I didn't want to follow their rules. And it's like, right. I'm not not following your rules, but I still have to do what I have to do because you're not going to do it. So like, if I need a ride to work, then yes, I'm going to call my adopted parents because they'll be able to come pick me up and take me to work. Or if I need to go to the doctor's appointment, they'll be able to come do that. And I just think like there was a break in communication when those things would happen. Um, and she just thought that I didn't want to follow the rules. We would get into arguments. And then one time we got into like a really bad argument. Um, the police, I guess the neighbor, it was a loud argument, and I guess the neighbors had called the police and stuff like that. Um, the police wound up showing up. And then uh, they had made a decision that I needed to, a timeout, like I needed to leave. Once again, Casey was heading for a new placement, number nine. It was her birthday. And I wound up leaving on my 18th birthday. Um, so my work began to pick me up, and I wound up back at Together Youth Shelter. At 18 years old, I was in a really dark place. Like, I had that why me moment. Like, what did I do to deserve this life? Like, like what did I do to deserve to be in foster care, deserve to be, like, removed from my home, like, have to move all these times, have to try to trust people over and over again, and it still not work out, and here I am, yet again, in the same type of situation, once again. And where do I go from here? At 18, youth can sign themselves out of care. For many, this comes as a logical step when they reach legal adulthood. But by doing so, they miss out on crucial wraparound services and programs like the New Jersey Foster Care Scholars Program that can help them succeed. This was a critical moment for Casey. They say not to sign yourself out, but I didn't have a choice at that point. Like, I can't sign myself out because I don't have anywhere to go. But it's like, what is the point of staying in? Like, what was the point? Um, so yeah, I was in a very dark place. And I didn't want to... I didn't want to talk to them. Like, I didn't have anything to say. Like, um, and then eventually, like, they would let me, they let me come home for the weekends on, like, the weekends. And, but I didn't really spend, like, the weekend with them because I would have to go to college. Like, I would be going to college uh, tours and stuff like that in which my adoptive parents would come and pick me up to take me to them. Um, and I was also a senior in high school at the time. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know. And so I relied heavily on the staff there um, at Together Youth Shelter um, to help me because it was just like, I just didn't know what to do. That's all for part two of Casey's story. Next week on What the Foster, we'll see how Casey turns her story around and builds success from her struggles. Here's a brief preview of what you can expect. I did not have good grades. Yep, I went to all these college tours and college days and applied for all the schools that I wanted to apply to and did not get into any of them. None of them. Because of my high school transfer. Even now, I'm still like in shock that I was even able to graduate with my master's in one year. Um, 
like, and I thought I was shocked back then. Like, I would tell people when I was, like, the president of the Youth Advisory Board, like, never did I think I would get to this that point in my life um, after all the stuff that I went through. But never did I think I would get to this point either. And now here's an important Census 2020 PSA. Census 2020 starts on April 1st. Census counts determine federal funding for foster care, schools, and more. The census is only done every 10 years, so kids who aren't counted in this year's census will miss out on 10 years of resources that they could have had. That's why it's so important to count your foster children and grandchildren who live with you when you complete the census. Census data is confidential by law. You can help make sure all kids are counted by sharing this information in your community. Tell them, we're foster families and we count. This is a message from Umbrella, a foster care nonprofit in New Jersey.